Hi and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature Podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm speaking with Sarah Donarski. Sarah is a head of English department, PGC and NQT mentor, speaker, blogger, researcher and author of the Research Ed Guide to Assessment. I recently re-listened to an episode of Craig Barton's Tips for Teachers with Sarah and immediately jotted down a number of questions I had about assessment in English, which she has been kind enough to come on the podcast and answer. We discuss what final or summative assessment should look like in a key stage three department, whether teachers should ever give grades and if so, when and why, what should feedback look like at key stage three English, how should students follow up on said feedback, the novice wrote inflexible, flexible spectrum of knowledge. And finally, Sarah's favorite things about having studied in Australia and formerly working in an IB school. Thanks again to Sarah for not only contributing to the online discussions around assessment, but also evidence-informed professional development more broadly. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at Chris Jordan. H K. Okay, Sarah. So, what should final or summative assessments look like in a key stage three English department, in your opinion? What's really important is to think firstly about the kind of kids you have at your school and uh, how they're coming in. I think we've got at the moment a real disparity in cultural capital and kind of what knowledge is students are coming in with. And I think really understanding the journey uh, that your Key Stage 3 students need to take in order to access the Key Stage 4 curriculum and, of course, the A-level is, is probably the first step. So overseeing the kind of bigger picture and then building your Key Stage 3 um, schemes and assessment through that. Ultimately, the ideal um, at least I think, is to reduce big summative assessments, as you're saying, and actually really assessing little and often is probably going to be the most accurate way to know that a student is really developing a skill or not and developing knowledge or not. Um, and I'm trying to like, I'll put this into like a context for you. For, so for example, if I have a key stage three, say year seven scheme on Shakespeare, what do I want my year sevens to know about Shakespeare that's going to enable them to access Key Stage 4 and also give them that kind of cultural capital knowledge that if they've come from a family who's never looked at Shakespeare before, that is going to maybe um, make them as equal as a student in your class who, who whose parents are drama teachers or whatever. So it's kind of equalizing in year seven, isn't it? And so, for example, if that is, if I go right, what I want them to know is how to access and read the language, Shakespearean language, then my assessment is going to be based on that. Or if it's, I want them just to know about Shakespeare, because at this point in year seven, they don't need to be writing big essays on Shakespeare. We've got other kind of important things that they need to know, which is knowledge. You know, let's let's get them scrubbed up on like what Shakespeare's world was or what Shakespeare's life was. And then actually your assessment there is a knowledge-based assessment. You know, when was Shakespeare born? What, you know, if that's something that for you is really important to, to get those students to access that key stage for curriculum. So I, I think I think it's really important that you look at the kids in your school, um, you look at where they're from. So for example, in my current school, I am a head of department in a school that is an affluent school. So for me, kids come in with a pretty good understanding of, of kind of Shakespeare, but what they lack maybe is a bit of kind of cultural empathy. So we've been doing quite a lot of like post-colonial work and, and kind of embedding a lot of um, diverse shorts and, and getting students to read outside of their cultural perspective because that's something they're really bad at. And that in case history is going to be much better for them when they get into the into the exam and they're reading a narrative piece and it's it's about a kid in, in inner city London and they've never come across that before because it's just not their their experience or their life experience. So I think developing that key stage three curriculum and then of course the assessments that go alongside it, those big summative assessment is purely dependent on why am I doing this? What do I want to my students to get out of it? And is it equalizing their schemas really so that they can they have an equal opportunity to access that key stage four, key stage five curriculum as they move forward? I see what you mean. I, I, is it too reductive to say that 
as as year seven becomes year eight becomes year nine does does the summative kind of get longer or does you know if you're gonna do it as like a multiple choice quiz or if you're gonna do um sort of closed questions and things like that does it become more complicated as the years go on or does the writing get longer or is that too like I say simplistic a view to take on it um again I think I think ultimately so what we've we've done is we're reworking our year 10 assessment actually when we do Macbeth we're doing a knowledge-based test rather than a an essay because by year 10 for us it wasn't that the kids couldn't write an essay actually they're quite good at writing it's just they were lacking the knowledge they were lacking the quotations that kind of thing so actually we're going back and using a knowledge base so the writing I guess is less than what it would be if it was an essay Um, but in terms of the value of the assessment for us we're actually able to give like proper feedback that we know that student you know, okay, that student doesn't know their quotations at all. That student doesn't know the play at all. And actually, if they don't know the play, they can't write an essay on it. So instead of throwing them into an essay and then, um, you know, having those multiple points of feedback, it's a bit easier to go, right, well, it's a bit easier to go back to the learning and go, okay, I know that student doesn't know the play. So here are some tasks to help them with the bigger picture. And I know that student doesn't know quotations. So a bit of route learning. One thing I would say, which I've definitely spoken about though, back on my previous also really important not just to for us to use assessment to like get those core stages so that we're lifting students equally but also assessment for fun I think what we lack at key stage two quite often is doing assessment that just makes students think um, and there's a real big um, excellent body of work in in kind of the research field. This like assessment should force students to think, not just regurgitate, but really think and manipulate knowledge. So um, you know, so I always quote Mary Meyer when she says it, and I, I know numerous people have gone um, on to this, but key stage three really is the time when we can play with knowledge that bit more. It is the the intellectual powerhouse of the curriculum where we're not having to just focus assessment towards you know, exam-based stuff. So, you know, you can kind of do an assessment where you've got like half knowledge base and then like an extension task on the end, you know, write about Macbeth as if he was in the normal day or write about Romeo and Juliet and, and just kind of showing their knowledge by by manipulating it that little bit because because that's really what students have to do in their exams. They have to go in with all of this knowledge and manipulate it. So the more we're training them to do that as well is, is I think, very valuable, especially at Key Stage 3. Mm. And th- and then in terms of again, this is quite a reductive question, but wh- when does this happen, Sarah? Like when? So let's say I mean I'm sure it kind of changes for every assessment, but are you letting the students know what's on the test six weeks in advance? And I, I use the word test obviously very very loosely, but whatever the nature of the task is, do they know exactly what the prompt is six weeks in advance, two weeks, one week, or is it kind of surprise test on the day? I think. That idea of kind of getting them to be flexible with the learning is nice, but is it something that you surprise them with? Um, or is it, you know, how, how do you set it up in the short to long term? So with the flexible tasks, absolutely. That's a bit more of a surprise task because I think that needs to show that level of surprise. The the, the idea of um, flexible learning is that you go into something completely unseen and you apply all your knowledge to do it. With regards to the knowledge stuff, absolutely, like we give prompts because it's it's um, encouraging study and and for a lot of knowledge based um, information, it really is just rote learning and and revising and testing and and self testing. So. There's never any harm in saying, right, next week you're going to be quizzed on Act 1 quotations, you know, and giving that prompt so that students are going home um, and and hopefully building this, the study skills required to, to then go forward when they, when they are in GCSE. They know they need to be going home and revising. I think with regards to assessment like I said the ideal is is little and often um and you know I'm kind of very fortunate that I'll be moving uh we've kind of looked at curriculum design in a new role which is a, a role across a trust and and the assessment is so neatly embedded in the 
in the kind of scheme and that and that's really where where it should be like okay we've got these series of lessons and we've got a very small assessment maybe writing a paragraph or or testing on knowledge and actually then that's kind of marked within the lesson and I think once you really neatly curriculum design with assessment it stops becoming an adjunct onto your onto your scheme and and, and should be in kind of intricately woven into the scheme so that your feedback isn't hugely tiresome um, the, the conversations about the skills are ongoing um, and also then kids are reflecting on that as a part of the learning process, not this big thing at the end that they have to prepare for that becomes kind of catastrophic or or not. So it becomes really stressful. You know, assessment is the best way that we understand where students are. We need to be doing it regularly and they need to know that actually realistically until the final assessment the purpose of assessment is to feed back to them. It's not any sort of other thing. Um, and that's that's really the problem in the culture, isn't it? That kids, kids, and I ask students all the time, why am I assessing you? And they say, well, because you're giving me a grade. No, <laughs> I'm assessing you so you know where you are, so you know where to go and you know how to get better. Um, and that's the conversation that needs to shift. Um, yeah, it's amazing how kind of broad that conversation is it uh, in in terms of like it doesn't really seem to matter where you go what continent you're on the the i'd go as far as to call it like an addiction to grades or knowing what grade you're at seems to be quite um quite rife and it kind of brings me to that second question in 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 your opinion should we ever give grades in key stage three or i mean even going into sort of year 10 and 11 if they're not external examinations do you ever think grades are a good idea and if so when should we give them and why should we give them so grades are having done quite a bit of research on this I think grades are a marker they're a marker that parents understand and they're a marker that students understand so there is some value in giving a grade I think what really needs to happen is a very good triangulated conversation between the school, the parents and the teachers as to exactly what that is and what that looks like. And I've got so many examples of this, but ultimately, firstly, I think grades are never accurate. They're never, ever going to be accurate. The most accurate grade you're going to get is your mocks. And even then you get different questions in the final thing. So I think ultimately that's the first thing that really needs to be communicated. A grade is a kind of marker. It's not an accurate grade. You know, we're not witches. We're not predictors of grades, you know, and the best thing we can do as teachers, and this is why I said assess a little and often, is get up as many kind of small points that you can um, that are going to give you something accurate. Now, the problem with teachers as well is that we are notoriously optimistic when it comes to our grades as well. We want our students to do well and we see them on their best days and we know what they can achieve on their best days. So very often, and it happens all the time in my department, I've had to really have big conversations with my colleagues about they can't be looking at the data and going, okay, if it's 665, 65554 and going six at the end of that, you know, and, and that's very often what we do because we, we do see that. We go, you know what, that, if that kid does really well, they'll get six. And so we we kind of optimize where the performance, but actually we need to just go back to classic mathematical averages on that. And it would be, you know, 4.3 or what or 5.3 or whatever it would be. And actually then they're more likely to achieve a five. And and I think um I think that's a big part of the issue with the conversations as well, that we often overpredict or we often kind of, like I said, optimize or romanticize those numbers. Um, but actually, again, they are just a marker. And I think, I think that's really important that those markers are from your staff as average as they can be, because that will be your most likely predictor. And when we look back at our our grade capture is you can see that. So you can see where a teacher is optimized or you can see where a teacher has literally gone, no, actually. And, and what is closer to the final grade is where a teacher has just averaged out that number. So um, again, that's for HODs and kind of SLT to really look at, like, does that assessment give you accurate data as best as it can? Um, and then again, that real 
honest conversation that this is just a marker. Um, we can give this kind of as a rough feel for where they're going, but ultimately the performance on the day is going to 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 also affect how students perform. So, so grades should be given, I think, perhaps termly, just on things. But again, parents need to know, and I'm sure you experience this, you know, you change topics, right? So you go Macbeth and then poetry. So they might be up here for Macbeth and down here for poetry. So, um, and then you're never really doing them together anyway. And that's going to change the whole thing again. So again, it's a kind of a loose indicator of grades. And that is all it will ever be because it's not everything together. Um, It's not something that goes forwards or backwards. And that's probably got to do with that progress and, you know, that kind of... um, wave of progress that we saw in the UK a few years ago where like kids had to keep going up actually that makes no sense at all when you're shifting and changing topics so it's got to do with that as well so yeah a real honest conversation what grades are is is what a school needs to communicate and I think that is fine it's like this is an indication of where your child will perform however uh, given our data and then that's got to be it the real conversation needs to be on what it is that the student can be doing to improve at, at every point. Um, so, so you know, um, was it Harry Fletcher Wood recently posted that he's been delaying grade giving, um, and that's quite a, that's quite a good way to do it. But, you know, it's it's just got to shift that culture within the school. And like you said, it, it is kind of like a, a poisonous epidemic in in education. Kids are like, what's my grade? It's like, no, actually, that's not the purpose of this. We have to go back and say, this is all about feedback now. And then actually you get that grade capture on your report later, but actually it's got nothing to do with the conversation I have with you in the classroom. You know, so it's it's really shifting that culture. Um, again, I don't think they should be removed t- totally. I think I think most research kind of does say it's a, it's a, it's a language used between mm-hmm. teachers and parents as an as an indicator, but actually understanding what that language is doing is is the problem, and that's where the communication tends to break down. Mm. What so and to get into the weeds of it a little bit, if you the problem that I continually have is if you if you do that thing of little and often, which which I I think is absolutely on the money, I find it hard to offer a grade to paragraph or offer a grade to like if you are doing a sort of you know retrieval practice quiz that has 10 questions on it are you are you also giving grades for those things or is it typically for longer pieces of work yeah so again we would grade that very loosely um just to add up our kind of averages um again you do need to see those extended pieces of work but more for it depends where do you know what I mean but it's by year 11 isn't it that we want to see that so actually if you've got some indications early on that they do well in a knowledge test and you've given a grade for a knowledge test and they can write a paragraph actually that those data points are probably as valuable as a more valuable if not than getting them to just write year 10 Mm. and and grading that you know um so so yeah, so I think there is flexibility there. And, and I think what, what educators need to do, and, and I think departments specifically, is go back, start from scratch, have a look, go, right, these are going to be our assessments. Let's see what data point we get out of the, these assessments, out of averaging these assessments. Let's see how we can grade them in lessons or very quickly um, and, and give it a go. And I think I think what's quite exciting is... Um, I've like just observed a, a really excellent curriculum design um, where basically teachers never mark outside of the classroom. It's it's embedded into the way they go about their their hour in the classroom. You know, we've got right, this lesson is going to be this piece of writing, and then I'm gonna look at two or three on a visualizer and then we're gonna mark it, and then I'll take it in and quality check that. But actually, for, for the teacher, it's not taking away hordes of essays. Mm. Um, and if they can get that data point, if they can get that paragraph regularly and often, why could they not put that into an essay? You know, mm. so I think there is actually space there for English teachers, particularly to go back and go, right, let's just try it. Let's try it at Key Stage 3. Let's let's have a go. Do we have to keep doing it the way we've always done just because we've always done it? Mm. Um, and I do think there's some really good work happening um, around the country where people are moving away from that. Um, 
Yeah, I think I saw I um I listened to you speak to Craig Barton about this, but you were talking about the relationship between assessment and feedback and how the two kind of feed off one another. You really need to be thinking about how much time have I got to be given feedback, and that obviously has an impact on the assessment. And similarly, the makeup of the assessment is going to impact the way in which you can you can feedback. So, like in terms. Like how how what should feedback look like to you? Are you subscribing to that Dylan William quadrant of feedback thing? For for anyone who doesn't know, that's kind of like a, a quarter is in-depth feedback, whatever that means. Uh, another quarter would be peer, another would be self, another would be I can't remember what the fourth one is now. Uh, <laughs> skimming, like skimming through or something like that. Um what 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 do you what's your response to that, Sarah? Like, how should we be treating feedback with regard to assessment? Yeah, so I mean, I think ultimately, and and again, this comes with another, I would say, fallacy of education. Good feedback doesn't look like anything except for the student learning, right? So it doesn't have to be a purple pen on a page. It doesn't have to be this or that. It's you know, and very regularly, it, it's it's what the student. Yeah, it's where the student is learning. So very regularly, um, when I've had a book scrutiny, you can see there's no conversation with that child. And what you can see on the page is corrections from the child. They've been like including things and adding things on. Um, but in terms of what it looked like in a kind of form, then you know you, you can't see anything. It looks like that student has self-corrected, which. Um, which has come from verbal feedback. Obviously, with Ofsted and, and book scrutinies, in that sense, we've kind of moved to like, okay, let's put a stamp and, and various things on there. Um, I do hope that Ofsted continues to move forward um, with its kind of more research slant in that it recognises that good feedback is is much more embedded in, in, a, in a curriculum than just a purple panel page or a quadrant marking all the time. Um, ultimately, I think what, Re, uh, educators need to do is go back again, go back to your assessment points and think what is the best and most time effective way I can give feedback to the to to this assessment at, you know as a as a collective school. And if it's you know a knowledge-based test, then obviously you can have an answer sheet, you know, something like that. It doesn't need to be you sitting down marking multiple choice. You can have an answer sheet, you can peer assess and you can embed that in. And then you can also go through the answers. And that's a great way to not only consolidate the, the knowledge for those who know it, but also to then assist those, those knowledge errors where, where students have, have made errors. So, yeah, so I think feedback type needs to be matched to the assessment type in the best way. With Dylan Williams' uh, full quadrant marking, which you're right, it's a paragraph of like 25% detail, 25% skimming, 25% peer, 25% self, um, is excellent for long essays. Again, it's just another way to think, right, we've got a long essay that we need to mark. How can we reduce the time? Because the best feedback happens as quickly as possible, right? So, so this is for the child's benefit that we can turn this over quickly. So what is the best way we can get this um, turned over? Now, again, I think if you're coming up with loads of errors in a big essay, then actually realistically, it's probably better to go back to earlier assessments and be like, can I embed that students can write paragraphs do they know their quotations? Do they know the play? That that kind of assessment is going to be much more valuable. And by the time they get to writing an essay, really what the assessment should be looking at is can they form it together? Can they, like you said, write for an extended period of time? Because that's they're the skills you're assessing by that point. But it shouldn't be knowledge. The knowledge should have been assessed by that point, really. And, and by the end, they should be coming together. So that feedback should be easier if the earlier assessments are uh, well embedded to lead up to that big essay. I think a lot of the time what English teachers might do, and I've certainly done it in the past, is just throw an essay and actually not corrected any of the misconceptions before. So then I'm spending hours going through, you know, that's not a quotation. This is not how you write an essay. That's not how you structure it. And actually what would have been much better is if I tested them on their quotations tested them on how to write a paragraph, tested them on how to write an introduction, tested them on how to write two paragraphs, and then, you know, let them loose on a, on a full essay um, at the end. So 
So yeah, and all of those smaller things can be done by peer assessment, can be done by um, using model um, paragraphs, can you know breaking down models, you know getting kids to break down their models. Right? What what elements have you missed? Okay, that's what you need to do next time. And and I think actually regularly the the one other thing we don't do as educators is remind students where they went wrong before. Um, I think good feedback for us is also reminding students where they went wrong before. So tracking of feedback um, by students in their book or something like that, I think is is really valuable. Very often when I'm doing work with a student, I'll flick back to the last time we did something like that. And I'll be like, right, write that target at the top of your page. Or even if they haven't done that, I will go back and be like, right, what have you done there? Have you definitely have you definitely not done it this time? You know, and, and just making sure that learning um, conversation is ongoing and does include all the hard work that we've done giving feedback from six, seven months ago as well. Mm, I think, yeah, it, it, you've answered sort of my fourth question as well there with regard to like what the kids should do once they've been given that feedback. Um, but it kind of reminds me of something that you were talking about before where you said, you may be on a unit devoted to Macbeth and then move on to poetry and something, some of the more, um, I don't know, attuned students um, say to me is I'll give them, you know, we, we will have done some kind of uh, little and often tasks all the way through, but the nature of the way that we interpret our particular curriculum here, like the middle years program with the IB is that, I think we've got like 16 strands or something, like 16 skills, whatever you want to call them, that we have to assess twice a year. And it ends up being maybe four sort of end of unit assessments that we end up doing uh, every year. And what students will say to me after this, this summative thing at the end is I'll sort of highlight things that they could, that they need to think about in terms of improving it, do some general like uh, class feedback, that they can then apply to the things that are highlighted on their paper. And one or two will come to me and say, but is this relevant to the next unit? Um, and obviously I can play that off as, well, yes, in some ways it is, but in some ways it isn't, but it will be relevant to the unit after that, or it'll be relevant in year 10, or it'll be relevant in year eight. When, when, they're, um, when they receive the feedback, is it just a simple case of them fixing so to speak the piece of work that they've done or do you do something a bit more holistic than that when it comes to sort of reflecting and applying what they should have known before but but now have a better idea of so uh, i'll come back to something you've really touched on <laughs> and i'll answer your question first um so very often i'll get students to track modules in the back of their book because you're absolutely right you know, like for us, you know, Macbeth doesn't need context, the Christmas Carol does, poetry does, you know, these things can be similar but different. Um, so very often I will get them to just track, right, the last Macbeth essay, this was my feedback, you know, whatever. And actually once they do that across units, you can also see trends, which is really interesting. So you can be like, actually, you're not picking apart language near enough in all your things. And that is something that is assessed across everything. Um, you can also say, well, like, you know, you, you didn't do context there, you need to do it there um, and, and give them that kind of holistic picture as well. Because the issue is, is that we have that holistic picture, isn't it? And it's so hard for them to see. Um, so actually building something with feedback that the kids can see their trends, um, see the, the skills they need here or there, you know, and then actually when you come to one of those units where you're like, right, this is similar to what you've learned before, you can go back and go, right, those skills that you needed to work on, they're the ones you're trying to apply now again. And actually it gives them a bit more of a, a bigger picture on their learning journey, um, which I think has absolutely made my students much more self-reflective because you regularly see them going, you know, like, okay, we're going to do with Beth. Okay. They go back and like, right, where was I at? Um, but it also makes that conversation easier for me when they're making mistakes, because I can just say, look, this is a continual error. And it comes with 
exactly what you know Carl Hendrick I quote quoted all the time as well we need to be changing the, the the child not the piece of work we can do all the all the things in the world to change the piece of work but unless that child is really picking up the habit and going I'm making this error this is a, a big error this is a holistic error across this unit or across these units um, not just solely to that one essay and something that I'll forget once I've done my green pen and we've moved on, you know, and, and it goes into the back of the drawer. The other thing I wanted to mention, and it's something I wanted to talk about in general anyway, is the power of assessment in general. The, the fact that it is so clear for those of us who have taught maybe even outside of England as well, how much curriculum design and assessment drives what we do in the classroom, right? And I think that's that's a huge, like you said, you know, I'm planning it because I've got these assessments and I've got these different units. And I think a bigger conversation needs to be happening as like, you know, and I'm, I know it is kind of in the works, but are our assessments fit for purpose um, for what they need to do? Because everything we do at the top, everything that is the GCSE or the M. Um, MYP or the IB or the A-level or the HSC drives everything that we're doing in a classroom. And we need to make sure that that's right because teaching changes based on that. Um, that's just a whole side thing. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that. Um, but, but yeah, ultimately, we want to change the students' mm. students' mistakes in general. So true. Like that, um, the, Carl, the Carl Hendrick comment that you make I think um I I sort of I don't know I've been rest probably my whole career but I've been wrestling with how to give effective feedback in terms of when when it is like a close marking thing of of essays and things like that and the thing that I've landed on most recently when I do give detailed feedback is I'll use like highlighters you know like neon highlighters and like that thing the Dylan William thing of like turning um feedback into detective work like I'll highlight it and I'll give them a general idea of why it's been highlighted but it's up to them to sort of work out well it's wrong why is it wrong is it is it a grammar issue is it a spelling issue is it, or is it a punctuation issue if so and they know that if they bring it to me and it's wrong again like I'll ask them to go and go back and sit down and they have to so you know it it will get checked before they can move on to the next task so to speak but what has kind of killed me in the last year or so is that I might have students that make errors with subject verb agreement and I'll highlight every single one and independently on their own they'll fix every single one and then the next essay will come around and they'll do it again and it's that relationship of that they're almost relying on me to point out where the errors are and then they can fix it, so to speak. And I think that that idea that you've just come up with there or that you've just shared there, the idea that they're tracking what those misconceptions are, either somewhere on the book or, or somewhere, you know, a digital soft copy or whatever, is, is probably the thing which I've been telling myself in the back of my mind that I need to do. They, they need to be more proactive, um, but I haven't got around to doing yet. So that's really, really useful. Thank you. <laughs> Mm. I am. Um, I honestly, so I know this sounds brutal. I know like I have really great relationships with my kids, but if I had a child like that in my classroom who I knew every time was doing that, I'd be like, you need to fix, like, I'm not looking at that until I know that you've done that. And I would quickly check, nope, it's not done yet. You know, like, I think when you've got a good relationship with their kids and you stress the importance of, no, 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 you need to get this right. And I'm not going to look at it until until you you have a good go at trying to get this right because uh, I, it's another real issue of mine but t kids do write for you you know you are their audience and if you're saying I'm not going to look at it until you fix that one thing because that one thing matters to me they will hopefully make more of an effort to do that um, I think very often it is that like you said they'll get complacent and knowing that we will check it for them um, but that doesn't give them autonomy in fixing the error a hundred percent and I think I, I think I don't think that's brutal at all I think I think it shows they can, it, if you're firm with them like more often than not like firm but fair I do think they they feel like you care so much more I think mm -hmm. yeah I think across across 
an entire year that proactiveness thing is is certainly something i need to develop um personally uh anyway the uh the next question uh, that i had for you kind of comes back to again something you mentioned on um uh, the craig barton podcast where you were talking about when a student comes into contact with with new learning um in in relation to whether you can assess them or not you talked about this kind of paradigm of or spectrum of being a novice learner, a rote learner, an inflexible learner or a flexible learner. Um, how does it apply? Like for anyone who's not familiar with it, can you explain it in regard to like how it would apply to your approach to a given unit or a year level or or a key stage? Yeah, so it's effectively a kind of a nice way to think about the learning journey of our students across any given scheme. And it's usually when they enter it, where they are a novice learner, um, we can turn them into rote learners where they can um, regurgitate, you know, kind of knowledge and and get kind of some idea of of the content. They then move into kind of inflexible learning where they can apply that content, but only given the kind of structures or, you know, with a kind of structure needed. And then then the inflexible learner is the the one that can take everything they've learned and kind of throw it into a new new context. And I I wrote about this a while ago with regards to the difference between knowledge and understanding. Um, And I've talked about it quite a lot in that sense that, you know, ultimately we can give students knowledge and we can test for knowledge. Testing for understanding to me is the unknown element. It's it's kind of the spontaneous extra. And I think for a long time when we were testing for understanding, we were actually testing for knowledge. Um, But understanding is, you know, can I apply all of these things to something I've never, ever seen before? And that is where you are flexible with your learning pattern and style. Um, So the question that you asked is like, do I expect this for all my students all the time? And and I would say probably not. Um, I think it's getting to flexible learning is is a real challenge. Um, But I think it's really valuable in planning your scheme so that you are working through um, kind of the stages of of an appropriate learning journey with your students. Like I said before, coming back to when we're talking about, like, say, Shakespeare in year seven, like, you start with that assessment, go, right, what do I want them to really know? from that um, and then that will be your kind of inflexible or rote learning and that's the stuff that's probably going to be really valuable for them to take forward into years eight nine ten the flexible bit I just think is a really um, fun way to assess in year seven so again having you know half a half an assessment that is showing that they're understanding kind of or that, that sorry that they've got their knowledge and rote and, and inflexible learning that they can regurgitate they would know how to apply this stuff um, and then throwing it into a context that maybe they've never seen before. And, uh, you, you know, like I said, like a creative task or, or even, you know, how would you, what would you do if you wrote about this and just giving them a complete other thing? Like a really good example was maybe with Jacqueline Hyde, one year in the GCSE, the theme of help came up. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the text, but, you know, you help. Like, how does Jacqueline Hyde explore help? And and help is obviously something that schools had never looked at. And it was a big uproar about, well, we've never taught our kids help. But you have taught them support networks and duplicity and all of these things. So it's it's giving students the ability to recognize that something unseen is not necessarily something unknown. Uh, and that's where flexible learning is, is really valuable. And I don't think we teach it enough at GCSE. I don't think we teach it enough at Key Stage 3 either. And actually, I think we definitely don't teach it at GCSE because when in the odd circumstances, when those random questions come up, kids do stress. Um, so I think the more we can teach that, particularly at Key Stage 3, allowing students to play with the knowledge they've learned and giving them assessment where they really have to kind of like I said, deeply think, you know, um, I think that's that's the time to to bring that in. And not all students will get it and, and they don't have to either. You know what I mean? Like ultimately your kind of aim is probably going to be to make sure that they, they have key knowledge. The purpose of that is just to try and extend their thinking a little bit more and to get them unafraid of doing that. And, and I think that's really valuable to build into the curriculum so that when they get to GCSE, they're, they're not scared to be kind of creative risk takers if something comes up that, 
you know, they weren't expecting. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. I think it's what's interesting. I know we'll talk about sort of the IBDP in, in a minute, but what's interesting is that I think they've they've sort of changed the more recent course so that like one of the final assessments is essentially um, an unseen kind of selection of prompts in which they can choose any two texts that they've studied and apply it to a particular topic. But obviously the topics won't be announced until kind of when they receive the exam. And it's so, um, it's such a divisive kind of paper in terms of discussing it with, with like the year 12s or the year 13s, because you have students who are incredible uh, and i don't want to sound too pejorative but they're incredible at regurgitating information they will write down everything you say and they can rewrite it and they are you know a star students in gcse and when they come up into ib they, they kind of want um the same level of insight with regard to like how they apply that in an in an ibdp essay so it might be that you've studied 13 texts in the literature course and their two favorites are I don't know, Antigone and at night all blood is black or something like that. And, but the questions might be something around poverty, nature, journey and death. And it's, it's, it's completely impossible for the teacher to kind of set them up in, in any way other than kind of engaging or um, helping flexibility to find a way and that's when those kind of learners who have been engaged by teachers lower down the school levels in a way that wasn't so rote or wasn't so inflexible really come to the fore because they can make connections they can kind of offer arguments and things like that that you would i suppose you would you would find at the very upper echelons of the subject at university that's what we would do, you know, in, in seminars and stuff like that. You would debate things, or even if you're listening to podcasts and stuff like that, that they, they sound like very flexible in their learning. Um, so I completely agree with you. And it it, do, it it's so hard. I think it's really, really hard to instill it from like a younger, like a really young age, like year seven, eight, nine, when you are building their foundations in terms of how do you write an essay? What is a character? What is a theme? What is this? What is that? But maybe, like you say, sort of year 10, year 11, year 12, year 13 are the years where maybe that's coming to fruition a little bit more. And those schools who do NYP for five years, I'm, I don't currently work at a school like that. But if you're not kind of under the yoke of GCSE or, or um, IGCSE, whatever the international equivalent might be, then maybe you can play around with that a little bit more. But it's tricky, isn't it, to kind of find that balance between what they absolutely need for the test and what you would like them to have more holistically as a as a student of English, so to speak. But yeah, really interesting kind of conversation for curriculum design. Yeah, and on that, I think something else that helps is a bigger picture, like your deputy head academics overlooking the curriculum across all subjects and going, right, when... When you're doing Romeo and Juliet, what's happening in history? Can we make a link? Can we make a link here or there with, you know, so that and and then for for all teachers to have access to that, you know, a, a big kind of curriculum plan across Key Three, you know, so that every teacher knows I can start making those connections at Key Three. We're doing war poetry. You're doing war in 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 history, you know, um, and so this isn't just knowledge that you learn in English this is knowledge that extends outside that classroom and and building that that connectivity between learning um, that can also be really helpful if there's not an opportunity to do it in the kind of assessment but actually just the overall curriculum design as you said um, yeah another another thing that's quite interesting um, again that you're touching upon so it's quite it's quite interesting for me so I grew up in Australia. Um, I did all my A-levels equivalent there. I was called the HSE. And then I moved over to the UK and started teaching over here. But I taught, I was originally trained as a teacher in Australia and then came over. Um, and one of the things I really hated about the GCSE and the A-level was how prescriptive it was because my HSE uh, assessment was much more like the IB is now. You know, you get a kind of statement. And actually, we only get taught uh, at you know, at A-level, we might get taught one text and then we have to go find out others. Yeah. So, so, 
it has to be student selected with regards to extra texts. So that kind of freedom for me was excellent. But and, and initially when I moved over here, I was like, it's so prescriptive. And I was really grappling with that as a problem. And again, this comes with, like I said, that bigger conversation. Everything we assess for HSE, IB, A level is going to determine the way that we teach. But the one thing I would say is that curriculum was not accessible. I, you know, in hindsight, I look at it and I think that curriculum was not accessible for, for kids who weren't readers or for yeah. kids who were disadvantaged. And actually what you do get is a massive binary in the results in Australia with kids who are able to access the curriculum and kids who aren't because the curriculum re- requires so much creative input. Um, whereas at least for the GCSE, yes, okay, it's not always that creative, but at least it's hopefully accessible. If we if we manage the key stage three curriculum better, then we can then we have an assessment that hopefully kids who don't have don't start from you know the front front of the race can actually build into. Um, so there are positives and negatives, I think, of of these of these designs. Um, but again, I guess it is holistically dependent on what you're doing in those earlier years to, to build up to that. And again, the power of, of that in general, I don't know, were you teaching the IB before the new change? Yeah. So I really loved that. Um, and I, I, I loved that much more than the new, the new way um, I'm not sure your feelings, um, but again, something like, you know, with higher level IB, you would do, I would do Hamlet and I would do Keats and, you know, you'd have the envelopes down and they'd pick 20 minutes and you'd have this 16 year old talking through a Keats sonnet to you for eight minutes and the level of knowledge required to do that and just how brilliant they were. I used to always remember just being sat there going, this is awesome. This is this is amazing. Um, and again, that that requires a lot of, of knowledge, but also there's that creativity element. I really liked that. But um Yeah. It go, it, it's interesting the point you make there about like the kind of um the wealth disparity, because it, it really goes to the heart of any of these kind of um well, I'll I'll talk about high B education because that's what I know best, but when I kind of did my master's looking at inquiry-based learning and the way it was implemented in, in our school in particular, a lot of the literature talked about how inquiry is more often kind of favoured by teachers who work at higher higher socioeconomic background schools, basically. And a lot of the feedback that was coming from schools in in Australia that discontinued like the the middle years program, they were saying that some of these kids really excel, but it's the kids who you would typically expect to excel. And the students who struggle to kind of access the curriculum anyway are just floundering in the uh, inquiry-based kind of system. And I think that, yeah, I, I I can really see how... Um, you know, I, I, I've been observed by teachers before and I've done observations and kind of chatted to them afterwards. And I think sometimes you get sort of praise f- for, um, for for doing things, which I think back to like, if you were teaching in the UK, you, you would struggle so much to make what you can get away with in kind of an international school classroom Um you know, you can make it work here, but it would never happen in in a UK school just by virtue of the fact that if you give like the kind of intellectual or academic void to students to say, you need to go and find out about this thing or find your own this thing or design your own whatever. And I think unless it's like really rigorously set up in the UK, it's it's going to be a real challenge, I think, sometimes to engage students who it's it's a challenge for them even to be in the classroom in the morning, never mind kind of being, you know, um, um, completely free and autonomous to make certain choices. But that worries me slightly because, and I'm by no means an expert on this, but recently, I think this week, I read that there was, you know, some criticism of the way in which Ofsted and, and the Tory government have really taken on board direct instruction. 
and there was some criticism around kind of how we've we've gone too far down like a knowledge rich curriculum and how we need more of an equivalent of an english baccalaureate like the english back uh, the international baccalaureate so it's really interesting to hear what you just said in terms of coming from australia and really liking that system but then seeing the kind of the rates of disadvantaged children or the 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 amount of children who would find it really difficult to access the same type of curriculum if that's something that the UK government are thinking of rolling out that that's something they've obviously got to be cognizant of that um direct instruction is is currently providing us with um Absolutely. Yeah, and I think yeah. go on sorry sir. I was just gonna say I think every time we compare with international systems we need to look at you know where where things are being lost I think it's very easy for us to kind of trophy mm. other systems and think that they're getting it right and actually without a kind of really close analysis of exactly what's going on there and and a really good example is and like I said I loved the the freedom of the Australian education system when I was working there um but we don't have Ofsted and we didn't have you know there's there's no Ofsted equivalent and I worked in um a really disadvantaged school in my area I was it was amazing. It was 25% First Nations, which is a massive portion for um, kind of the South Coast. Um, and so many of those kids were able to come in and just put their head on the desk. And that was how they dealt with their day-to-day. Mm. And it was because there's no there's 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 no um responsibility given to schools with regards to that. So yes, okay, we're able to go in and and teach creatively and go okay, well, for your HSC, you need to study your own texts and do this. And there's this complete offload to the child. But how how far does it does it get them in the end? And then that's where you get that real binary of of results. You get, like you said, the inquiry, the top end kids or the kids that would be expected to do well, doing really well and being taught to be very creative and kind of conceptual thinkers. But anyone who's not able to access is is just left behind. Um, and that and that just seems to be okay. You know, so there there are real serious questions and you know especially given I'm sure you've kept abreast of it with with what's happened with Scotland's curriculum of excellence at the moment you know kind of trying to do something that is massively skill-based and leaving knowledge behind and actually seeing a massive drop in their results Mm. um so I I think I think at the moment hopefully the kind of grassroots what I like to call the grassroots kind of research based community which is keeping that knowledge rich curriculum at the forefront is has still has its its kind of waves but you're absolutely right I think that when when the government throws around this big change to the curriculum thinking it, it could be better um are they looking at are they looking at how accessible it is or are they thinking about the top end doing better um yeah, completely agree. It's like it's quite a convoluted sort of problematic matter, really politically, pedo- pedagogically, socially, whatever. Um, but on a, on a sort of more brighter note, I guess, um, for the last question, if if there was something you've obviously you know a lot of experience in England now with regards to Key Stage Three, GCSE, A Level, etc. If there was something that you could borrow from either the Australia uh, Australian um, system or your experience in the IBDP, um, what would you like to sort of bring into um, the curriculum with regard to what all schools have access to in England? What do you think would be a nice sort of switch or tweak or change, so to speak? Um, it's a great question. I, like I said, I... I mean, those big statement questions where kids apply texts, um, Mm. I love, but actually there is some of that in the A-level. So, you know, for example, OCR, A-level do that with regards to poetry and drama. I guess there isn't that extra element, which is quite interesting, where students are able to bring in their own um, text, you know, and again, we used to do, um, so like we used to do like journeys or I had one module that was like, into the wild and it was all about globalization and and isolation and um and so we yeah we basically had to just read around so we had quite a few students doing um 
the actual text, you know, into the wild and and bringing that in and doing that themselves. So I think there's an there's an element of that which, again, I I, I think is nice for maybe a level because they're going to be your kids who are choosing that and yeah. so hopefully they are readers and they're able to to adapt and bring in their own their own pieces of literature um but again then for those who aren't actually readers and who kind of fall into it because they've, they've had a great experience and then they love it and actually they they don't necessarily have that cultural capital that can be a negative thing as well um but the other thing I would say is is the module that I um I spoke to you about before the the kind of oral module of the, the the previous IB or even the unseen poem. I absolutely loved that where it was just two hours a poem, no question, just go for it. And I think that may be that kind of just exciting play with knowledge that you know you could you could adapt, not just necessarily like Hamlet, which you've learned and. Um, but yeah, just here's a poem, go for it. No question. Just let's see what you do with it. And I, I think that's quite nice because that is applying all the skills and knowledge that you might have, but again, to something, to something without, without a steer, um, and just does allow that bit more of creative assessment. Mm. Um, the oral, I'm not sure about your experience of the eight minute oral with regards to, I just love that because I just thought, you, you couldn't hide, do you know, it really taught students to be autonomous in their learning and they had to go in and it's a very vulnerable thing to speak about a poem for eight minutes. So they had to know it, you know, they just, and I think in terms of like an assessment for knowledge, you know, that, that was excellent. So, um, so yeah, but again, I, I think my only concern with that is of course, you know, it's an oral project. It's in the IB. Obviously, automatically, you're looking at kids all over the world, some with in England who have a greater competency with English and others who don't. And again, how how equal is that as an assessment? How accessible is that for everyone? Uh, and I'm not totally sure. Um, obviously, I haven't experienced it um, doing an assessment like that in an international school. I've only experienced it in a school over here, but I, I did feel like my students were probably going to be much like better equipped to articulate about a Keats poem, um, perhaps, you know, so there's that with, there's that with that issue. So I don't know, I think overall, what I'm trying to say, something that just adds a bit more creativity is just a bit less prescriptive to assessment objectives. You know, I find with the A-level, I'm always like, right, it's 12.5% AO5, you know, and they're like, how many points is that? I'm like, about three sentences, you know what I mean? And you're like, you find you, the, the creativity is ruined by that kind of real prescribed um, criteria. Yeah, if the, I mean, if there's one thing they do well, the IBDP, it is authenticity in terms of the the final task is always very, very good. And even I'm not that au fait with it, but um, at the end of the MYP, you can kind of opt to do these external examinations. And I've seen them very, very briefly, but it's amazing that some of them on an English exam, it might be, you know, you select one of the subject that you want to answer a interdisciplinary question on so let's say you choose like science or something like that it will combine some of the concepts that you've been learning in english with some of the concepts you've been learning in science and ask you for an extended answer and there's obviously flaws within that system and not a great many schools take it up but i do really like that in 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 theory the kind of idea of bringing two schools or two domains of knowledge together and and sort of um playing around with it in that regard yeah just as a geeky side comment um so Huxley Alice Huxley is one of my favorite writers mm. he um tried to write a utopia because he wrote Brave New World so he wrote a dystopia and then before he died tried to write a utopia as a kind of well if I think all of these things are bad about society then what <laughs> what would it look like if it was done well and the education system in his utopia was very much like that it was like it kind of would start with flowers and then you'd do poetry about flowers and the science about flowers and rah, rah. But actually, ultimately, when reflecting on it, he said that society doesn't value polymaths. Essentially, you know, really what we want in society is people who are very, very good at their prescribed thing. And actually, if you're kind of mostly good at a lot of stuff, it's far less... Uh, mm -hmm 
like it's far less accepted or or I guess celebrated and so I think that is probably the problem with it in the end you know like you know when you're looking at university stuff you know especially with the A level the A level is a perfect example of that isn't it it's like just be very good at the things that you want to do Mm -hmm. Um, so how much again as a bigger picture are we really celebrating people who know a lot about various things outside of trivial pursuit can you know at Christmas so you know so there's that there's that extra element going on as well I think where we do I think we still very much value people who are very good at one thing Mm. yeah yeah agree I think there's 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 a, I think there's a lot of truth in the idea that you can be good at anything, but you can't be good at everything. And but at the same time, creativity, I've heard sort of creativity described as when two sort of spheres of knowledge kind of, you know, bump up against each other and that kind of thing. So it's I don't know, it's a messy, it's a tricky business, isn't it? But I think yeah, that's that's what makes it so interesting. Um, but yeah, the, the the last thing that remains for me to say, Sarah, thank you very much for giving up uh, a little slice of your Christmas holiday uh, for context. So thank you very much for that. Um, but not only that, also kind of, you know, all the writing um, that you've put out there in the last few years and the conversations you're having uh, with people online. It's really, really useful as a as an English teacher, but also as a, you know, as a teacher more generally with regard to assessment and feedback. So thank you so much. Thanks very much. It's lovely to chat.